Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I guess it was the very first time I had experienced what that vulnerability of being on the other side of the consultation table feels like. Um, I just wanted somebody to just listen to what my anxieties were and everyone was like, well, you're just anxious, you're just traumatised, here's an antidepressant, this will fix it. And, you know, I'd never really felt the need to listen to my intuition until that point. And there was just lots of different things that happened that made me look not just at my own life, but really as to, it's kind of informed the kind of doctor I am now. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen Podcast with me, Dr. Rupi, where we discuss the most important topics and concepts in the medicinal qualities of food and lifestyle. Today's podcast is very different. It is the Doctor Dinner Party Experiment with your lifestyle doctors, five incredible doctors who you're going to learn a lot about over the next hour. I decided to cook an entire dinner party for all of us, sat around a table. We had loads of plant-based recipes, za'atar, salads. We had roasted veggies, tahini, pomegranate, you name it. And I managed to do it all in less than an hour. And if you want to see how I did that, check it out on the YouTube channel. I'll show you how to make all those five recipes. I'm actually quite proud of myself about how I did that. So make sure you go check that out. The Lifestyle Doctors consist of Dr. Chintal, Dr. Vanita, Dr. Sumi, Dr. Christie, and Dr. Poonam. They are a group of doctors who are passionate about helping patients and the public live healthier lives. They have a broad yet unique set of expertise between them and they've decided to use their knowledge base to really help directly with patients by doing community groups, lots of different workshops and you'll learn a bit about what they're up to on this pod too. They have an incredible range of specialties. Dr. Chintal is a Central London GP and trainer for Imperial College, passionate about food. Dr. Vanita is a paediatrician and nutrition specialist, and her goal is to simplify nutrition and lifestyle messages for everyday life for her patients. Dr. Sumi is an NHS GP partner and trainer in Southeast London with a passion for teaching lifestyle medicine. And she's also a director of Culinary Medicine UK with me. Dr. Christie is a West London GP specializing in preventative medicine. But alongside being a doctor, she's also a qualified physiotherapist and acupuncturist. And lastly, Dr. Poonam is the medical educator 
operator in Glasgow, you'll definitely be able to listen to her accent. She's also a trustee and director of the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine. You can find out more about their individual bios on the doctorskitchen.com website. And in this pod, we talk about the changing role of the general practitioner and how that's changed over the last couple of years, how they juggle family life. A lot of the doctors on the pod today have kids themselves. What actually makes a good doctor and why medicine can stifle creativity and how this is sometimes an outlet for them. Psychotherapy and counselling as a mandate for all health professionals and why we need that. We also talk about actually what it takes to be a doctor and how the label of doctor can mean anything from someone straight out of medical school to someone else with 20 years plus experience. And you'll find out exactly how much experience there is across the table with these five doctors uh, during the pod too. We touch on the personal experiences of some of the doctors' resilience, pediatricians having the worst levels of burnout, mindfulness prescriptions, nature scripts, if giving people food prescriptions would be something that would entice behavior change, who knows? If you've ever been interested in the art of the consultation, the shared management strategy, the guiding of the consult from symptomatology to diagnosis to treatment, I think you're really going to enjoy being a fly on the wall at this dinner party. And I must say, their work in community groups, the free workshops they do, um, the, f- the fact that they're trying to get directly to people who won't be listening to this podcast, they won't be following us on social media. This is real game-changing stuff, and I'm honoured to have these incredible doctors on the pod, and I really hope you like it. As always, you can find this information and more at thedoctorskitchen.com, but for now, enjoy the dinner. How did you guys form this little Spice Girl crew? (laughs) (laughs) We still haven't figured out who's, who's who here. Well, we all met for brunch one day, didn't we? And I looked around the table and I said, come on, girls, let's do something. We each have this interest, different interests in lifestyle medicine and different expertise. So with Chintel, she's an amazing chef as well, but creates recipes for families. We've heard what Christy does. She gets you to exercise when you've only got one minute or two minutes. <laughs> and with Punam, we've got mindfulness, meditation, stress busting but then we have to put it all together so we've got Sumi who's the health coach how do you actually get it into your life because you're never going to do that unless somebody's helping you to do that exactly. it's really hard to put all these things into people's lives and we know that because we do it every day with our patients mm-hmm. so we thought why don't we do something like a platform or some events so that's how we started how did we all meet though I remember meeting you we met at, at a conference at, at the Foodist, College of Medicine oh, conference, yeah. didn't we? The Foodist yeah. Medicine conference. And I met you there and as well. And then I knew Vanita through there, so then we all met. Mm. Yes. And then and we actually we came meet? to the first culinary medicine meeting. Oh, yeah. Kitchen. Mm-hmm. That's the very first time we met was, you know when you put the call out for culinary medicine? Yeah. This oh, was yes, a, yes. This was over yes. 18 months ago. Yeah. Yes. You're the glue. The meat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where we first met. That's, like yeah, that's where we first met. And, and I first met in the best place oh. ever, Peggy Porsche. <laughs> we oh, met at Peggy Porsche. 
Yeah, because, well, obviously I'm not from London, so I met all of you on Instagram. (laughs) Um, And then I just met you at various events. But then also one of the other things that I do is I'm a trustee and one of the directors for the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine. So obviously being very passionate about lifestyle medicine, I kind of picked up very quickly that, you know, all of us were into the same sort of thing. And we kind of connected really over that, over various coffees and high teas and high fancy yeah that's how it all came together (laughs) and how has that been received because you guys have run some events where you all speak and you essentially give your perspective on lifestyle medicine it's been really good actually um we did the first event that we did was more for families because we realized that there's a lot of people out there who are promoting lifestyle medicine but actually it's generally for the kind of converted already so we were trying to target the everyday person and the families and the children so we had a really lovely local community hall event and it was so nice and we had families come and their kids and it was just really relaxed and we did little workshops I did a little exercise area you did a cooking area you talked about nutrition and you guys did mindful eating and talking about routine and it was it was so nice it was so relaxed and it was just a fun 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 day and um, yeah, so it was great. I like that that kind of uh, acknowledgement that uh, a lot of people who we speak to on social media platforms are already the converted. The mm-hmm. people that are going to actually look for healthy eating advice online are probably those who are already educated enough mm-hmm. to understand the impact of it on, on health outcomes. Um, so you're essentially trying to translate that into meaningful actions for communities and people that you see on a day-to-day basis to try and interact with. Uh, because everyone sat around this table is primary care. I mean, with the yeah, exception yeah. of yourself, well, Anita. Primary care you're Exactly, yeah. yeah. So you're a paediatrician, but you're a community paediatrician. Mm. Everyone else here is general practitioners yeah. um, slash all the other things yeah. that you are as well. But I think yeah. one of the biggest things that kind of connected us also, because certainly for Vinita, Chintel and myself, we're mums. So it's that kind of bringing in the family element was very yeah. important because it's how do you actually integrate sort of your well-being and wellness into your everyday life yeah. and making it a way of life and that's what we wanted to communicate with people because a lot of these events tend to be focused on adults or sort of the working people and which some of our events will be catered for but actually we hadn't seen somewhere where you could really have an inclusive family event where children and the grown-ups and the grandparents were all getting involved and learning about how do we make a routine as a family yeah. how do we you know make easy ready sort of easy meals every day mm-hmm. uh, how do we factor nutrition in, in our everyday lives so I think that that was what was really lovely and we had Daryl there um, so we like brought lots of fitness and fun into the day it was just it was super fun we enjoyed it so much yeah and, and yeah, yeah. It's fantastic and I think for all of us I think we all feel the same we don't feel like we've got enough time for our patients so for a typical GP consultation is 10 minutes long so we'd all love to spend longer going through things with our patients and this provides that platform to really just spend time you know we're not rushed everyone has something to contribute and the thing is we're all in it together we're all learning at the same time like I don't think doctors profess to be having the perfect lifestyle no, there's yeah. no such thing so when we're spending a bit more time you know delving into our interest in prevention lifestyle we're learning when, when I was running a meditation workshop I'm learning at the same time I'm meditating with people who are turning up you're going thinking about your routine how can you improve it and I think doing things like that really helps us to spread that message like you know beyond you know the realms of social media which Absolutely. is yeah really really useful yeah I think like when you're working in primary care as well you, you're in a very privileged 
this privileged position yeah. where you interact with a whole bunch of different specialties, mm -hmm. a whole bunch of different mm -hmm. patients with different issues. Um, and it really is quite grounding, I find. Um, at the same time, quite overwhelming. Yeah. So having that, and I think we're getting better at understanding um, our own vulnerabilities and yeah. our own shortcomings. Absolutely. Like I don't know as much as I'd like to know about motivational interviewing mm. and, and health coaching. Mm. And so I'm fascinated that you've actually done some formal sort of training in that. Yeah. So um, I've been interested in prevention from quite early on in my career. And I think like a lot of um, GPs, I felt quite frustrated that I didn't feel equipped to help my patients make the changes they wanted to. So I was really lucky. There was a Department of Health sponsored course. I applied, I, I got onto it. And during that course, we learned the different types of conversation frameworks that you can take on with patients. So it's helping them to make the changes. So, you know, for example, I, I had a patient um, who's one of my most memorable health coaching patients. You know, he came in, but he was already quite motivated. Motivated. He'd gained weight. He was worried about his, you know, risk of having heart disease because his dad had passed away from a heart attack. He was worried that, you know, he'd gained weight from, you know, sedentary lifestyle. So he said, you know, I just don't really know where to start. But previously he was someone who used to go to the gym, knew what to eat. He'd just lost his way because of family time. Yeah. So I was asking him, like, you know, what, what one change could you make, say, tomorrow in your daily routine? So he was coming up with the answers. So it was really an, such a fantastic way of putting the patient back in the driver's seat. And often as GPs, we're, you know, often we're doing the hard work. We're being paternalistic, saying, oh, you know, often we'll say, oh, you need to stop smoking. But actually, when you take a step back, give patients the opportunity to think about what they're doing in their daily life. They have the answers. They just need that extra sort of help to get there so for me health coaching has been quite transformative and hopefully you know our future events will be doing a bit of group health coaching so people can think about what they've learned our events and then take it forward because that's the key thing i have the same issue with my family so yeah. i can <laughs> so i can i can tell them what to do yes. and i can tell them the evidence base and i yeah. can you know put forward a very nicely constructed argument but unless they come up with the answers themselves mm it's very hard for them to actually make that change. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the same with patients as Absolutely. well. Um, so actually putting them in the driver's seat and actually getting them to come up with the answers and everything is the, um, is the ultimate. It's uh, the motivation for change, isn't yeah. it? Absolutely. Yeah. Otherwise it's not gonna happen. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think one of the most powerful things as doctors actually, well certainly I, I, I bring this a lot to my consultations, is just being transparent. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes just connecting with your patient and saying, do you know what, I've been there, like I understand mm -hmm. how hard it is. We form bad habits so easily, but it, it really requires all your will and might to want to change and helping them understand that planting that seed and I think as GPs one of the core things that we have the ability to do is if in your 10 minutes you can plant one seed mm. for the patient to go mm. away with I think like that every day is just the most satisfying part of my job yeah. oh I love it I do and desk workouts <laughs> and as GPs I guess as well we see our patients multiple times so we will see them again and we'll see how that seed has grown and we can plant another the seed and you know it continues so I think you know we only see them for a 10 minute period but if we can just put a small change in place and then the next time we see them Kind of I think this grows. is why when the whole country is struggling as GPs, we're like, we love being GPs. Like, <laughs> <laughs> we're like, we see change all the time. It's amazing. Yeah, I think but that's really, yeah, that's really un unusual for sure. Because I, I mean, a lot of my friends who are general practitioners who are perhaps not of this mindset are facing burnout. I mean, I face burnout as well myself. Mm. Um, and to go back to your point, actually, about uh, vulnerability, there seems to be a common thread that a lot of uh, doctors in particular who have experience their own 
medical issues or have had close family members with medical issues, you understand the frustrations, you understand, you can empathize at another level. Um, and I think that's something, there's a common thread in this table as well. I mean, I, I know yourself, yeah. you've had y- your own issues, haven't you? I think that that's probably the turning that sounds, point. So that sounds really bad. You've had your own issues. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you've had, My everyone's... issues have you got all day. <laughs> but no, absolutely. I think that for, for particular lifestyle medicine, it's come into many of our lives because we hit a crisis point at some point, whether it was with our own personal health and well-being or whether it was that of a loved one. And when you hit that, that's that's been your trigger to change. For me, certainly, that was. I, I've faced burnout also as a partner a few years ago, but my big sort of health problems happened after the birth of my son. And that's really when... Up until that point, I'd really taken my health for granted um, and kind of some parallels with your health mm. journey. But when we face a point where you think, oh, my God, this can't continue. I have to change. And you start looking for ways to really turn your own life around. You then have the platform to say to your patients, listen, don't wait for that car crash moment. Um, which is what we often see. We see people coming in and they're getting that diagnosis of type 2 diabetes or they're post-MI and that's when they are triggered to change. So I think just helping people prevent that point is quite valuable. So even if somebody comes in with a cold or a cough, you've got an opportunity if you've done your consultation in five minutes. You've got a few minutes just to explore their social history and say, look, tell me a little bit about your physical activity levels. Yeah, you actually opened up about your your own experiences post the mm. birth of your child. I didn't know about that. First yeah. of all, I don't, I don't, I don't think we've had that like conversation. Would you mind expanding a bit more on that and how you actually came, came uh, into the understanding around lifestyle medicine? Through yeah. So, like I said, um, up until I had my wee boy, I was perfectly healthy. Um, I'd never had any issues, but then it was really after he was born, just. Post um, delivery, I ended up with a very big blood loss. Um, and then, in trying to kind of resuscitate that blood loss, I ended up having quite a severe reaction to the blood products, which then led to DIC. My heart stopped to kind of, I went into heart failure, um, overwhelming sepsis, and just really everything kind of transcended into a point where I was in intensive care, ventilated. So it was quite tragic (laughs) and then the aftermath of that was the healing took so long I was not just physically depleted but just emotionally and mentally was just completely drained and everybody around me was just trying to medicalize it and I think when you have that medical knowledge also it's hard to switch off Mm -hmm. and I guess it was the very first time I had experienced what that vulnerability of being on the other side of the consultation table feels like Um, I just wanted somebody to just listen to what my anxieties were and everyone was like well you're just anxious you're just traumatized here's an antidepressant this will fix it and you know I'd never really felt the need to listen to my intuition until that point and there was just lots of different things that happened that made me look not just at my own life but really as to it's kind of informed the kind of doctor I am now but at that point I had to kind of take my own health into my own hands so I kind of started looking at meditation and mindfulness and really started working on my own physical 
activity levels and getting myself a bit more active, eating better, not just for me, but wanting to incorporate that into my son because I was like, well, we're Asian, so already he's doomed. <laughs> um, looking at my family history, gosh, we're all doomed. Um, how? What can I do to kind of prevent as much as I can some of the things that may happen to him when he's in his 30s, 40s? So really that was my big motivation to, to start looking at wellness. I think it's, it's interesting though, isn't it? Because as medics, we're all taught, you know, what's the diagnosis, yeah. spot the diagnosis, what is the etiology, what is the treatment plan? And we're, we're not taught that sometimes the treatment is just listening. Yeah. And as general practitioners, as people in primary care, you're very well aware of how just the connection, just being listened to yeah. is treatment in itself. And you kind of have to sometimes I mean I've learned this throughout my GP training is to withhold that prescription pad because you're like oh I, I'm meant to give an antidepressant in this case or the patient is wanting some sort of medical treatment as in a pharmaceutical whereas actually the right treatment in some cases not all cases but in, in a lot of cases that I see is to not to uh, to not give a pill to not give an intervention in that respect I think we've gone too far the other way I think that I mean, definitely we all practice evidence-based medicine, but I think that in sort of traditional medicine, we're really taught to focus, like you say, on what is the diagnosis, what is the treatment, and it's usually in some sort of intervention. But actually, much of the intervention is holistic. There's so many other things involved. And most of us, it kind of took a moment in our life to kind of get to that point where we're like, actually, this prescription pad we can put so much more on there. So I tend to prescribe, like I, I give out gratitude journals to my patients. Um, and I feel that patients sometimes just want something. So on a normal NHS prescription, I will write down sometimes, you know, I want you to just do some breathing exercises for seven days. And they love taking that away because we're living in a society that is so informed. People are clued up, but they want to be given the option. And sometimes when it comes from a doctor, they're like, yes, yeah. I'll listen to that. And sometimes yeah. I actually write on a piece of paper, I'm prescribing for you today. And I'll write 10 minutes out in nature, go for a walk at lunchtime, you know, and take some time for yourself. And they really love it, don't they? They like taking that piece of paper yeah. away and it's so satisfying. But we underestimate how powerful our voice is. Yeah. And that interaction with the patient mm. is often half of the mm. management the treatment they go away feeling a different mm. person absolutely the therapeutic consultation is just mm. sitting and listening i think i'm um, and i were both um, gp trainers and i like think we're i think the the way the listeners can you explain what that actually means yeah actually? sure I think, I think we assume sometimes we assume, that yeah, we're we're, like everyone knows the nhs structure i think okay. a lot of people don't realize the difference between a doctor uh, someone who's fully qualified mm. in, a, in a specialist position, someone yeah. who's a junior, like yeah. they just think, oh, all doctors are the same, you're all the same, but actually there are multiple levels yeah. of specialisation and different specialties as well. But. Yeah, so just for anyone who doesn't know what it takes to say, become a GP, um, we all have to do two years of foundation training, so spend a couple of years in hospital training, and GP training at the moment is three years long, so you spend two years rotating around different hospital specialties, you know, be it paediatrics, obstetrics and gynaecology, women's health, mental health, because as a GP, you're essentially expected to be a jack of all trades. So having experience in all those fields is you know, really, really important. And um, a lot of the training by the time they come to you in primary care, which is what I do at the moment, so I have a final year GP trainee with me, is just learning the art of the consultation. So being able to 
you know, sit with your patient for 10 minutes and go through that journey from symptom to diagnosis and a shared management um, strategy. So I think GP training has changed over the years. I think previously it was quite paternalistic. Mm. So for, my dad was a GP and in, you know, in his day, it was very much like you would just tell your patient what to do and they'd yeah. say, yes, doctor. Yeah. I didn't realize your dad was yeah, a GP. Yeah, my dad was oh, a GP so cool. as well, yeah. We, um, so, um, and it was interesting because I briefly worked with my dad and it was really, really? it was really interesting. So- um, telling you what to do. Yeah, and um, so then I'd have a lot of his regular patients like, you're quite different to the way your dad is. Um, your dad would just tell us that, um, you know, you're carrying a bit of extra weight, you need to lose weight. So that was, you know, you know that's how it used to be. Whereas I think now, I think particularly with my, my health coaching, how I think um, the direction and the way that we, we consult is quite different. I think we want to be shared with our patients. We want to empower them and all listen to them and not necessarily reach for a prescription pad because we know that's not necessarily the right thing. And actually, if you go back to medical school, first line often was, Yes. lifestyle yeah. but it's almost along the way yeah. we've forgotten because you know, pharma, you know pharmaceuticals have told us you know prescribe this medication so I think things are changing I think um, tr- GP trainers now the ones who are supervising are really trying to get that message through to trainees and I'm certainly seeing that the appetite to learn that way of doing things is there which is really refreshing so I can see the future GPs really sort of um, channeling that message that we're all really keen on I was just going to say that that uh, I found with the GP trainees that I have also usually ST3 so in their final year of GP training um, they don't actually have that much training in lifestyle medicine during Mm -hmm. and when they come to us in general practice it's really refreshing to actually you know, put it into practice with patients because actually when you answer an exam, even then the first treatment plan is actually lifestyle changes, isn't it? Mm, yeah. in, uh, that we're taught in medical school. Yeah. But weirdly, when we put it into practice, it's always a prescription. Yeah. So I think Well, it's, it's quicker, isn't it? It's, it's always was quicker to say, oh, I'll write this prescription. But if you can just sit back and pause and actually use the beauty of continuity and bring your patients back, it's quite interesting what can happen. Do you think there's a um, a, cl- a a type of patient that actually wants to be told very directly? Definitely, definitely. Yeah. definitely. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Yes. How do you sift those out? <laughs> I mean, we can be very honest there, but yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't work for everyone. The soft approach sometimes doesn't work, and sometimes people do want to be told. But that, I suppose, comes with a lot of experience. I mean, I'm learning every time I'm in general practice. Every time I'm in, I mean, I do ma- mostly emergency medicine these days. But I'm learning different consultation skills yeah. Um, yeah. from peers as well as as my own interactions. Yeah, I think it comes. Yeah, it comes after years, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean. Yeah. We sat and thought about how many years we have between us of medical experience. Guess how many years there are between us. Oh, yeah, in between. Between us. the five of us. Between the You're five of me. us. How many? <laughs> yeah. Go on, Rupi. I don't guess. know. You all look so young, so I'm going to say five. <laughs> Very good answer. Uh, yeah. Rupi. <laughs> you yeah, just qualified. You look so fresh faced. Yeah. So it's over 70 years oh, wow. of experience. So I wouldn't have guessed that. Mm-hmm. Yep, there we you go. We have a lot of experience between us. Yeah. Yeah. Must be the lifestyle. So that's... <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Food. to be <laughs> honest, we have to be flexible, don't you? You, do. you know, not everyone's going to receive... Just being responsive to what yeah. the person yeah. in front of you seems to want. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's what's yeah. beautiful, is that you get to see all walks of life. You get to see humanity in all of its... Yeah kind of ways and I think that you really only get that when you are in general practice because you're not seeing the same type of person or that you're you know or the same organ or the same disease every single day you just never know what's coming through the door and you get really good at just reading not just the verbal cues but reading the non-verbal cues and Mm -hmm. 
you get to know your patients over a lifetime you get to learn about the intricacies and dynamics of families and you get to know like how is this person going to respond mm-hmm. um and you get good at people yeah. reading you do yeah. It's great though. That's what I love about it. Yeah, I really do. It's so and that's exciting. Really, it's it's really exciting. It's the most exciting. Thing. Well, I think it's you have to be a bit nosy, don't you? To yeah. yeah, you have yeah, to. You, you have to be quite yeah. comfortable. I mean, I, 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 I think I honed my skills of nosiness when I was um, doing sexual health <laughs> in yeah. Brighton, oh, yeah. which is a wonderful in, place yeah. to do sexual <laughs> health. Right? I mean, the stuff that I heard, and you know, I, I had to Google a lot actually. Whilst really? I was like, yeah, I had no idea what people were saying to me. Examples. Well, I don't think. It's, it's correct We're dinner table. Here. <laughs> if this was in a dinner party, then I wouldn't mind. But maybe a bit later after I've had another one. You should come one. and do a gum clinic in Glasgow. Oh well, well. <laughs> but um, no, it's. I mean, you have to obviously ask them lots of questions. Yeah. Are you heterosexual? Are you homosexual? Yeah. Uh, are you bi? Uh, you know, do you use protection? Mm. How often? How many partners? You know, all these different things that I mean, I would go really red. Yeah, like yeah. my first Fair time I had started doing that yeah but now reel it off and i think (laughs) don't think anything off and i think people can read the confidence that you have as a practitioner and so it it just definitely comes with experience i mean i probably hopefully will look at myself in 10 years time and think you know i was i was very i mean i still feel very junior if i'm honest Mm -hmm. but uh you know i've learned so much in the next Mm -hmm. 10 years and so it's a it's a real like ongoing continuous journey it's really funny when you say that about how you like talk to patients like just this morning as well you know if you especially as a female I'd imagine it's the same when you see like female patients as a male but like just doing something like a digital examination a digital rectal examination on a man and I came out with oh don't don't (laughs) sorry (laughs) an examination of the back passage um for things like hemorrhoids um, (laughs) and other things it's fine yeah exactly ain't nothing you've not seen we've been very polite because we're faced by mics but in reality (laughs) (laughs) no it'd be very normal it gets way darker um but yeah it was just kind of i came out with oh don't don't be worried i do this all the time (laughs) i mean not all the time but like sometimes and then it was just this kind of complete awkwardness and you're like oh my god i've just dug myself a hole but i think you're right i think you're right though you know about going in there confidently Mm. i think if you um take out the awkwardness for the patient they really appreciate it so i think if you can say listen like if you say actually this part of your body is no different to another part to me i know it is for you i often find people just go oh okay doctor and also because we're so short on time we unfortunately we don't have that time to say actually i'll give you a few minutes just to say sorry can you please um undress and we can just um carry on but i think if you're confident patients really feel that and it's important to give them that you know sense that you know it's it's no different to any other body parks i think you, the work you did with the eva pill was really helpful because yeah. you were bringing you know for the importance of you know using terminology talking about genitalia it's no different to any other body part and i think the more the public has seen things like that i think it makes it easier even in our gp consultations absolutely yeah so. and the eva pill just for the listeners is the um charity that tries to raise awareness of the five gynecological cancers um and i remember when they first asked me to do that because uh, the CEO, um, Athena, who uh, she saw me do a lecture um, 
uh, it was one of the first lectures I'd done. And it was all about um, menstrual pain, um, uh, heavy, heavy bleeding, and what sort of nutritional strategies we could advise patients based on the evidence that we have um, for, for patients undergoing this, alongside, obviously, treatments that we, we all know of as general practitioners. Um, and she said it was the first time that, A, she's heard a man talk about this subject, mm. but B, without really, you know... Um, uh, going red yeah. or like mm-hmm. becoming embarrassed and stuff yeah. because I mean as GPs we do this all the time Absolutely. but there's always a we it, you know to be honest our, our jobs are quite hard and we see quite a lot of stuff so obviously we don't want to make fun of anything but actually to have a bit of humor in your in your life and your job is good isn't it you need to have that healthy balance don't you we were talking about it today actually resilience particularly in paediatricians because apparently at the moment they're the highest number of doctors seeking health for mental health issues so i've been working with one of the previous presidents of the royal college to say okay how can we help our doctors Mm -hmm. so obviously gps they do Mm. seek help but paediatricians aren't that good and we all need to know ways to build resilience and they were saying they're only just getting it into the medical student curriculum and now they're going to put it in the paediatric absolutely i mean they're they're probably as stressed as most specialties but then they have to deal with children i mean that is going to be harrowing itself and with all the high profile cases exactly yeah so the the uh, the garba case so many people have dropped out of training i can imagine we're really short of of yeah, my Doctors. primary interest was I wanted to be a neonatologist. And throughout uni, that was like every SSM, so specialist study module I did was geared towards that. That was all I ever wanted to do. And then I did my first job in peds and we had a little baby that died and I just could not emotionally deal with that. Um, and then it, I think it just becomes worse. It's hard enough now as a GP sometimes when you have young babies coming in and they're sick and you just think, how do I disconnect myself? Because you become really emotionally mm-hmm. attached and it's and you about really keeping that in check. you've had your own children. Oh, absolutely. Really I'm a much better paediatrician. If somebody tells me they've been up all night with a vomiting child, I understood what that meant yeah. once I'd had my own child doing that. And then that's just a different dynamic with the mums mm, and yeah. parents. I feel like sometimes that um, hinders my ability to connect with someone because um, I've had that experience as well. And even though I've assessed the child, they're safe to go home, they're tolerating some fluids, yeah. obviously they're not 100% better, obviously they're still sick. Yeah. Um, uh, often the question comes up, well, if you had children, you would know. And they always ask me, do you have children? And I have to be honest, the only children I have are godsons and they live in Miami. And I do get worried phone calls from their uh, their mother and father all the time. But um, yeah, that is something that I haven't experienced. And then I can't, I probably can't empathise as much. I mean, that isn't to say that everyone needs to have kids to be able to do their job. But, you know, it, it is certainly... Your own experience changes you, doesn't it? I think for the patient as well, that immediately the way that their rapport with you changes and they open up and it's just it's just a very I've noticed since I've had children um when I see a patient with children that that just the way they speak to me is very different and I think because they know know you you can relate exactly yeah Yeah, like even sort of feeding difficulties prior to having my little boy um if a mum came in and was anxious over colic I'd be like it's colic Mm -hmm. like you didn't sleep, okay, I mean, babies cry, you know. And then my little boy had silent reflux, which was undiagnosed and I wasn't taken seriously until he actually ended up um, really sick with it. But that sleep deprivation was 
horrific, probably worse than the birth, that dealing with a baby that is having severe colic and heartburn and it's helpless, like, I would never want to go through that again. But now when mums come in or parents come in and they talk about sleeplessness or, you know, colic or reflux and you just completely, like, empathise. And even though you can't necessarily, you can help them to a degree... But you, you can reassure them that it does get better. I promise you, your child will eat properly at some point. But um, but just being able to have that human connection. But equally, we've got aging parents at home. We've all had either siblings or friends who have been unwell. Like you can see narratives that are parallel to your own life as a GP with your patients. And I think if you bring that human element every day to work with you and promise to deliver that to your patients, um, but be able to also disconnect when you leave, I think that that's probably what makes a good doctor, irrespective of what specialty you are. I think everyone needs psychotherapy who's in medicine. I mean, it would help. I think yeah. it would definitely help. I mean, yeah. uh, one of my friends is an A&E doctor in Australia, and he's a registrar level now, going towards consultancy, which is really weird because he's a little bit younger than me, and we were working together in A&E at the same right. time. Um, but he's he's great. Um, he was telling me about a particularly traumatic night where he was in charge of the ED department. He had a whole bunch of juniors with him. Um, he had some really, really severe uh, uh, casualties come in, young RTAs, road traffic accidents. Um, and at seven in the morning, at the end of this horrific night, there were three therapists running around the ward going and trying to pin down the juniors that were on uh, over that night and just have a conversation with That's them. So and the Amy consultant, even though he wasn't on, was calling the department at seven in the morning to speak with him and all the other juniors one by one. It's something that's so lacking, I think, in the NHS, which is already overstretched. And I'm sure they are in Australia just as much or getting to that level anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly something I think that it needs to be in. It, it almost needs to be mandated in the NHS. Yeah. I, feel, I mean, good practice is that you have a debrief, but even that exactly. doesn't necessarily yeah. happen. Yeah. But they're making sure it's happening now in Evelina with the Children's Hospital, yeah. but only just now. There is there is access though for doctors to get therapy and it, it, it is out there, you just have to access it. I think it within general there. practice training actually we're quite good at that. Um, so. That Maybe is something that we have a we yes. have a, the PSU and the professional yeah. support yeah. unit to support mm-hmm. any trainees in difficulty and while they're training mm-hmm. Not afterwards, actually, but during their training, the deanery actually has a lot in place to support yeah. um, and to help build resilience and to, yeah. But I think it should be it should be mandatory. But it should be mandatory for everybody it should and be all specialities. Yeah. I think what's good. I think there is more help out there than there was before, and I think as trainers, and it's we, more acceptable to us for help. I think as so. well. Before I don't I think, think it was. I think you're right. I think there's still an element of stigma associated with asking for help amongst the medical profession. I think it's shifting, but I think mm-hmm. it's still there because of the professional responsibilities we have. Doctors worry if they, you know, ask for help. Yeah. Is their, you know, competency going to be questioned? So I think it needs to be normalised more, like you said. I think the fact that in Australia that's actually had to be done, that would not happen in the UK. Mm-hmm. Whether it's resource or culture, it, it's not quite there yet. But I am reassured that, say, for example, general practice in London, if there are any doctors listening, there's something called the Practitioner Health Programme. Yeah. So you can, self, you can self-refer... Um, if you have any you know, distressing issues in your life, regardless of whether it's to do with work or to do with, you know, you know, something that's happened outside of work, support is there. So I think there's some, some great work going on. Um, well, I think the very fact that like 
we as GPs and primary care physicians all sat around the table speaking on a public yeah. podcast talking about these issues mm. I don't think would have happened like a few no. years b- ago mm. you know the, the openness to be vulnerable I think is, um, is something that yes it's becoming quite fashionable if I'm honest um, but at the same time is something that would be very very uh, looked down upon amongst medics themselves mm. I mean I remember the, fir- the very first time I had an atrial fibrillation episode the reason why I took so long to even talk to my boss about it was because I, I felt like I might be seen as a weakling yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's just kind of endemic in the culture it but it is changing it is changing yeah. it is changing but I think it's interesting because now I think because of the high rates of burnout say primary care physicians and now and pediatricians as well people are adopting portfolio careers mm. because they're recognising that working you know the hours that pe- people previously used to it's not sustainable so I think uh, doctors want to do other things using their medical backgrounds yeah. to deliver you know the message in a different way work with patients in other ways which is I think what a lot of us are doing now particularly yeah. around this table I think as a way to manage that well it's nice to have an outlet isn't it yeah. yes yeah. creative yeah. outlets and things yeah One of the reason actually that I ended up in the whole portfolio route I was previously a partner and was quite burnt out with it and I think I probably entered that quite early on in my career as a GP but also there was like quite a lot of pressure put on partners um but the well, light just bulb- expand on that a bit actually mm. because I don't think many people understand why GPs are burnt out in the first place because yeah. the perspective is and perha- perhaps amongst medics still as well that GPs just see the patients in the morning the afternoon they go home they're usually on the golf course by, by <laughs> 3 p.m. <laughs> That was the traditional, traditional honestly, traditional people view. still think yeah. that about GPs. Gosh. Oh, you're a GP, you must be on a load of money and you go to the golf course. Yeah. No. no. It's absolutely not the case. And I think if I was ever to redo a career based on money, I would definitely not have chosen general practice <laughs> yeah. or doctor, full stop. Yeah. Um, but when I was a partner, and um, I mean, Sumi, you're still your partner, um, but it wasn't just seeing the patient. So you'd have your usual GP day. So you'd been seeing something in excess of 30 face-to-face patients. You'd have your home visits, you'd have your usual admin. But then on top of that, you had all the business side to look at. So you had to see where you're meeting all your um, deadlines, meeting all the contract requirements. If you didn't have a staff member turn up for the day, how are you going to cope with that? You have internal politics and dynamics also. So it's kind of like, entering a marriage with other partners so you all really need to be connected and on the same wavelength which is hard enough to actually find a soulmate in real life let alone like be financially tied to other people who may not work like you or may not have the same outlook in terms of business um so a lot of these things are quite stressful if a partner goes off sick for example you've all got to kind of cover that so the pressures are insane and of course you're managing and juggling your own personal life alongside that and for me I had um, my baby at the time was only one years old so I was trying to juggle that I was working four and a half days a week but there was a time where I was sitting on holiday with like my friends in Turkey a cocktail in one hand and ordering toilet roll on the other hand for the health center because we are we didn't have a practice manager and I was like is this my life you know like do I want luxury toilet paper for like you know and um it was little things like that that it got to a point I thought this is encroaching on everything I was working late at night in order to get away at a reasonable time to spend time with my family I was having remote access which means GPs often take a lot of their paperwork home so that they can do it later on in their own personal time but you can be up to all hours of the night really never disconnecting 
So I kind of felt that after three and a half years, I just couldn't stand that. But the light bulb moment for me in my portfolio journey was I I work for the University of Glasgow. So um, I'm a lecturer and also a tutor. But I was interviewing uh, sixth year medical uh, school students. And it was like every student was coming in and I was like, tell me, why do you want to be a doctor? And they were like, I want to help people. (laughs) But I'm also like grady, celloist, and I've just traveled to Uganda to do all this other like voluntary work. And I'm, you know, amazing at sports. And I was like, once upon a time, this was like all of me. And now I literally sit and order toilet paper and see patients. (laughs) And, but it was just this complete, diverse individual full of creative flair but also academically successful and I thought why is it that we somewhere along the line give up all of that creativity when actually we're full of that Mm. Um, and for me going down my portfolio journey was hold on I love writing Um, I want to write more and since then I have kind of gone on to kind of do more in sort of journalism but um, you know there's lots more to me than just being a standard GP every single day and that was my journey into portfolio it was like young students that inspired that and now as a teacher I tend to say to them never give up your other interests you know and medicine very much informs absolutely every one of my other passions but it's not all of me I'm noticing that amongst different specialties as well so I think it's not just GPs that have like these amazing outlets it's a whole bunch of different specialties I mean mean, this is one in paediatrics but endocrinologists uh, a good friend of ours Anita uh, is a gynecologist you know there's so much that a lot of other medics can give Um, but one thing I did want to ask you guys about is uh, is lifestyle medicine as a term under attack Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. I would say so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I guess it's how you view it. Mm. Lifestyle medicine, for, for me, as a GP, as an NHS GP that practices NHS evidence-based medicine, is an adjunct, is an adjunct to my everyday practice. So I wouldn't necessarily say that it's, it's a replacement in every clinical scenario, but it's definitely going to be an adjunct and definitely help patients in a positive way. Um, whichever aspect of it we use for particular conditions and I think that's the whole point Um, nothing in medicine is black and white and you know lifestyle medicine isn't black and white so I think the way it's attacked is probably very black and white and we perhaps need to see the the wider picture I agree with Gentle Sorry, I was just going to say, at the end of the day, we're just empowering patients to take control of their own health, aren't we? So we're just trying to say, you've got the tools there to be able to optimise your health. And we're just giving them the information and trying to motivate them to make some changes, which will overall help their health physically and mentally. So it's just empowering, I think, to be able to offer them that opportunity. And I think the the term lifestyle medicine, I think doctors have been practicing lifestyle medicine for eons it's yeah. just a different term if you speak to a gp from 20 30 years ago it's like oh yeah we're talking about prevention. sleep prevention yes. exercising moving this is not this is not new i think what's interesting is it's been given this new name it's getting a focus which i think is overall despite any negative press i think it's a fantastic thing because i think in many ways if we focus on it we're going to be giving um, our nhs you know a bit of a lift we're going to be you know hopefully you know 
preventing chronic diseases and you know the burden that comes with it both financial in terms of quality of life and life expectancy so I think it's just a a new term for something that doctors do anyway and they do it well but I think it's bringing the focus back onto prevention and um, looking at yourself as you know someone who can help help themselves with their own health. And it's also, um, it's not replacing medicine, is it? No, it's, no. Just, it's just, as you medicine. said, it's an adjunct, isn't yes. it? It's yes. not replacing. It's an addition we, too. Yeah, we it's all prescribe. Tool. We yeah. all prescribe yeah. stuff. Everyone yes. needs to be prescribed things in, in certain conditions. But we're just saying also, alongside this, we can also give you the opportunity to mm. improve your health in other ways. So it, it all should meld together, shouldn't it? Yeah. It should all work together. And I think all of us are evidence-based. We all, you know, we read the journals. We know what's out there. We know our nice guidelines. And absolutely, we are so fortunate to have some of the medications and drugs that we have now that we didn't have yesterday and it's about using them appropriately but also giving patients a chance if they can go without medication to try the different areas of lifestyle medicine and that's really I think the message that we want to put forward and at the same time they could have a drug for a particular condition Mm. but they could be helped with lifestyle medicine in another way for another condition Mm -hmm. so it's using it together with medicine I think the traditional yeah I think the traditional role of the doctor was just to treat illness but actually I don't think that there was much focus historically on sort of health promotion and education which actually is the traditional role of the doctor we're not just there especially as GPs to just treat illness we're there to actually educate our communities which we've not done historically we've never had the time and right now I think lifestyle medicine is seen as a threat to a lot of GPs that feel burnt out or feel that already there is so much on our plates so here is another thing that we have to do um I think that there's often an attack that lifestyle medicine is just a bit of woo-woo and it's just quackery medicine. But actually, we're all doing it. We're all practicing it. But the facts are that society is getting sicker. We have more chronic disease today and we have more awareness of it than we've ever had. So clearly, education is not getting out there. It's not got out there through the media. It's not got through all the other avenues and outlets. So maybe now doctors need to be at the forefront of this message and campaign to say we want to actually start moving towards a healthier society. It starts with us. And that's what lifestyle medicine is. And that's what prompted us really to start Mm -hmm. our workshops, because actually we didn't have the time in our clinical hours to address these additional things that people could do to improve their mm-hmm. life. And by having holding these workshops, which we deliberately promoted and targeted within the community, within our practices, to actually reach people that didn't have access to social media, that weren't already converted. Yeah. We um, handed out flyers yeah. to the church halls yeah. and yeah. to our community. Yeah. It was schools. amazing. Yeah, schools <laughs> and our local libraries. GP practices. <laughs> and like, yeah, exactly. We wanted to reach that target audience that perhaps don't really understand it and educate them on different aspects of their health and how they can improve it. Mm. What do you see as the future for your lifestyle doctors? (laughs) (laughs) Have you done that, like, five-year forward sort of thinking or what what you envisage? No. Why don't we do it right now? It's a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) Like, how are you going to scale this? Because I think, like, a lot of people will look at um, what you guys are doing, um, and I'm playing devil's advocate, and say that's all very nice, but how is that actually going to make a difference on a grander scale, mm-hmm. and how are you going to measure it as well as you can get this funded? Mm-hmm. Um, I obviously am a big believer in it, and I think there's a lot more um, in the way of how we can actually uh, quantify uh, benefits to human health. But um, I think that's one of the main criticisms that you know there isn't enough. Uh, um, 
infrastructure around our healthcare system to deal with, you know, the kind of things that you're doing, which are quite labor intensive. I mean, you're giving up your own time to do this stuff. And to be honest, I mean, at the moment, I think we're just focusing on trying to reach as many people as possible. So we want to do some more events. We're planning on doing an event in Jan, February. Um, <laughs> first of February. First of February. Brilliant. Okay. Yeah, we'll save the date because we're going to do. We so we in the first event we targeted families, and that was really successful. This time we thought we would try and target more working professionals, because pretty much all of us I think have experienced some form of burnout in our lives and and we're all learning from it and so we want to try and share some of our experiences to working professionals so we thought our next event might be um, geared towards yeah the the young professionals um, of any age to be honest um, <laughs> any age not exclusive not inclu- exclusive and um, and so we want to try and give people the opportunity to um, improve their or optimize their health really through making some lifestyle changes and we really want to be able to give people let people leave with like a social prescription Mm -hmm. like we were talking about before we actually want people to take a piece of paper away and have written down tips and tricks that they've taken from our workshops because we've all as we said at the beginning like we've all got our own little niches and so we'd hope that you know if people are already exercising and eating well then maybe they need to um, look into stress and um, avoiding burnout so they might take something away about mindfulness for example or routine but if someone's already doing all of that and they don't know how to exercise then hopefully they'll take something away from that and they'll be able to take it away on a piece of paper and have their own little social prescription for themselves so that's what our aim is for our next event awesome that's super cool but it's always about creating that ripple effect yeah you can reach even like sort of on on a day-to-day we reach you know even individuals they go away and if something has resonated they tell their friends or their family members and people start that so our focus is that if we can continue with through content making through event organizing and through really just pushing forward our message that we can hopefully create a bit more of a ripple and a movement Absolutely. that you know we're just ordinary people <laughs> that happen yeah, to yeah. have some and, information and, guess, and knowledge yeah, and experience yes. And I guess sort of scaling up where you say a long term plan, you know, if other people were to be inspired by that and set up their own groups and set up similar things in other areas, that would be amazing, Amazing. which, you know, we would love. So if we can make this work and we can show that it works, maybe it will inspire others and other areas to do the same. It could be like the park run model. Like if you had like a a kind of structure to what you guys are doing and then people can come along and start their own sort of lifestyle Mm -hmm. events up in another country. That's really Mm -hmm. how you start a movement. So big fan of you guys Aww, <laughs> of, course, of course I mean I, I haven't cooked a massive meal like this for everyone <laughs> we are honoured do you have to have five women over for dinner I know yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. it's going to look really bad on social media isn't it Rupi Doctor's Kitchen Liz five women to his studio <laughs> low this lighting this is where we put the PIMP tune that's <laughs> she hasn't had a glass say- of wine <laughs> <laughs> but I must say your food is pure dead brilliant oh thank you very much that's very nice of you I very much appreciate it if you're going to leave the listeners with one tip from your respective area of lifestyle and I'm going to limit you guys to a sentence because <laughs> we can all talk ages um, 
We'll start off with sporty lifestyle medicine advice. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so my main tip for everybody out there, um, and because I'm ad- an advocate of exercise, I'm going to ask everyone to move more and sit less. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> I will. <laughs> we should have been standing up for this. <laughs> Sorry. Standing desk. <laughs> I think it's actually more important how you eat than what you're eating yeah. sometimes. Yeah. And this sort of social sitting where we're all around a table, it's not there in many families. And that's what we try and encourage people to go back to. Because whatever you're eating, you end up eating in a more mindful way. Yeah. So that's really important. I always say it's as important who's around the table as well as what's on the table. Definitely, yeah. Yeah. I guess following on from what you've just said, um, my angle is the, is the cooking and, and putting things into practice. Mm. Um, I would say to try and do that as much as a family or with your partner or with other people and talk about what you're doing and encourage conversations around food. Um, why you might be cooking a certain ingredient, perhaps go shopping together, perhaps cook meals together, encourage fat. I'm, as a mum, I'm a big advocate of in- including my children in everything we do and in- from the kind of choosing to the shopping to the cooking process you know they're part of it all and i really think that encourages really healthy conversations around food so that would be my point um so i would say that no matter how overwhelming your day gets always remember to breathe to focus on every breath and the most important thing is to always enjoy every breath Well, last but not least, no pressure here to come up with something really um, phenomenal. Um, Are you posh lifestyle medicine spice? Oh, I'll take that. I'll take that. I don't know if that's a compliment or not, but thanks. Well, you're Ruby. very fashionable. You can start your own line. You thanks, know. thanks, Ruby. <laughs> um, so, uh, um, in terms of um, all the things we've said, I think. For anyone who's listening, who's inspired by what we said, or they're sitting at home thinking, you know, I really want to make a change in my lifestyle. Um, firstly, just, you know, don't be too hard on yourself if things are not going exactly the way you want it to. You're human. It's hard to get things exactly right. But maybe think about one area of your lifestyle that you'd like to improve that would have the most impact. Take something, maybe think about one small change you can make just that one, just for one day, and then just try it out, you know. And if you can maintain that, you'll be surprised how far you'll get. Because I think often as human beings, we can have big ambitions. Say, for example, New Year to make some massive changes. And then when we don't succeed, we give up. So I think if you're thinking about making a change, you know, give yourself a give yourself some time, give yourself an opportunity, and then see how you go. And um, if you want some more support, you know, you can see your GP, enlist your friends and families, you know, come to workshops like ours and um, hopefully you'll be on a journey to better health. That is the longest sentence ever. (laughs) I really, really enjoyed that and I can't wait to have more dinner parties, but I would love to know your opinion as to whether you enjoyed that or not. Please give us your honest opinion on Twitter, on Instagram, send us a DM as well on, across social media. I'll try and look out for them. You can send us an email too via the website. And if you want to have more of those, please do let us know. I'd love to know who you want on the podcast or who you think should be at the next 
Doctor's Kitchen dinner party. Love to know. Please send us your comments. As always, you can find all of this information and more on thedoctorskitchen.com. Please follow my guests on social media. They are at Your Lifestyle Doctors, and you can find their individual social handles on the doctorskitchen.com podcast page as well. I'm really excited for them. I think they've got an incredible set of future goals and i can't wait to support them as much as possible please give us a five star review over a thousand of you have already i really really appreciate all of them and i try and read all the comments but if you haven't we know thousands of you listen to this podcast every single week so please consider giving us a five star review it really helps spread the message have a fantastic week and i'll see you next time